this morning, really want to uh, just help to give you some tools. Uh, uh, I want today to be really practical for you. I want you to be able to, uh, to walk away today with just some different ways of looking and thinking about things and to, to take this truth and apply it into your life and into your heart. And so one of the, the tools that we, uh, that we like to use, there's a guy named Paul Miller. He's, he's written a bunch of books and Bible studies. And if you look down in our resource room, we've got a bunch of his, his things there. And uh, Keith works with his ministry, See Jesus Ministries. But one of the tools he uses is this, um, uh, this uh, chart that I'm going to have Leora put up on the screen here. But it's, uh, it's really... Um, it's, it's about, I took this picture out of my book, so the prayer thing, that's mine. So Paul, and, Paul Miller and I work together on this diagram, just so you know. Uh, but so he talks about, um, for, for most of us, we have a hope, right? We have what we want. You have a hope for this week, how you're going to spend your time, how much money's going to be in the bank account, how much money you're going to pull out of that bank account to spend on fun things for yourself, right? Like you have, you have hopes, you have desires for what your kids are going to be like, you have, you have hopes of where you're going in life. Like we all have these, these hopes of what we want our life to be like, and usually it's stolen from other people's Instagram pictures, and we're like, wow, that looks perfect, I want that, right? And then we have a reality. We have the experience of what we go through every day, and for none of us, none of us experience those two lines running together, right? Like our, our reality never lines up with our hope. And so there's, there's two possibilities. One is that you just live up in, in hope world, right? And so you just, it's this sort of unrealistic optimism where you just deny that there are any challenges. You deny that there's any struggle and you just, you just insist that everything is good. And that's, honestly, if we're honest, that's what Christian culture kind of lives up there, right? Like, in the Christian world, I mean, you could have the worst week of your life. Your, you know, your pet died and your, you know, I don't want to get too specific because I might touch on somebody's nerve, right? So, but you had a bad week. You come in and somebody's like, hey, how you doing? I'm, I'm doing great. I'm so blessed, you know? <laughs> And so we live in, in denial of the reality, right? We don't, we don't give a chance for people to enter into our realities. We're just like, nah, I'm good, man. I'm so good. God is so good, you know? And he is, and we are blessed. But when you live in that denial, you're, you're, you're not living in, in, in light of reality. So the other option is that we live down in reality, right? We come, we come down here and we're like, oh, man, like, you know, everything's horrible. And that's where you enter into uh, where, where you're, you're discouraged, you're hopeless. Ultimately, it leads to despair where there is no hope. And so what Paul Miller says is he says that that, that gap between our hope and our reality is where we need to pray. That's where we need to push into God. And instead of coming to God and saying, God, just, you know, I'm not even going to trouble you with my stuff. Like, just thank you. You're amazing. And you don't come and say, God, it's horrible. Everything's, I don't understand, Right. You come and say, God, I want what you want. I know what your hope is. I know what you've spoken. I know, I know where I'm supposed to be. But I also know, God, this is where it's at. And I need you to fill that gap. I need you to do what only you can do because I can't do it. And so I'm dependent on you. And when we live in that self-awareness and that, that tension between those two things, that's where we're in a position to see God really do amazing things. We just start praying those things out. And little by little, you see God bringing those things together. And really, it's not bringing them together. It's bringing our reality up to the hope. And, and that's where we want to live. And so, so what we're going to see here this morning, what we already heard read, is a picture of the hope that the Apostle Paul has for the Corinthian church. He says, you know what? You know what? You know when I look at you, do you know what I see? And, and it's that first paragraph, right? And so there's a couple things I want to point out to you here. And this is going to be a sermon in a couple parts. 
But the first part is looking at the hope. We're up on the top part of the line, right? He says, I hope that you understand that, that my authority, my instructions to you are authoritative. Because what he says, he says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. He says, hey, I want you to know that when I speak to you, this isn't just Paul speaking, that I'm speaking as one who's been sent by God with truth that I'm sharing and speaking into your life. And so I want you to receive it as such. I want you, my hope is that you will receive this instruction. And in the same way speaking to us, my, his hope as, as we're reading this, because he's writing to us too, right? His hope is that we'll look at the, the, the Bible as God's word and say, this, is, this has been delivered to us by the will of God. This is God's word. These aren't, these aren't just um, ideas of men from 2,000 years ago, but this is the very word of God spoken into our lives. So there's this apostolic authority that he has when he speaks. The second hope is he says, hey, I hope that you realize that every true church is God's church. If we're honest, sometimes we think this is our church, right? Sometimes we think that, you know, and especially we find that out when, when somebody changes something from the way that it's normally done, right? Like, and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Did anybody run that by me? <laughs> because this is my church, you know, and I'm, I'm not sure I want to do that, right? Or I don't want that to, to change, but it's God's church. We had a great reminder of that, man. Hope for Philly yesterday was awesome. I was so proud of our church, uh, the way that people served. Uh, we learned a couple things about church culture. At 8 a.m., which was the assigned arrival time, there was uh, a circle of about 25 or 30 Riverside people and one or two other people there, like, ready to go. <laughs> and by the end of the day, there was way, way more other volunteers. But they've done it eight years, so they understand that when they say 8 a.m., you don't actually have to show up at 8 a.m., right? But we didn't know that. So, but, man, we were a part of God's church uh, because the church of Philadelphia is made up of a bunch of local community gatherings that come together, but we're really part of one church. There's one church in Philadelphia. It's the church of Jesus, and every believer is a part of that. And so yesterday, for those that went down, we got to taste a little bit of that. We got to see, like, hey, what does it look like to serve together and to worship together and to, um, to, 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 to be able to bless other people together? And it was an awesome experience. And he says, hey, my hope for you is that you recognize that, that the church in Corinth, that's God's church. You're part of, you're part of God's church. Third, he wants them to, to realize that every true member of the church is a saint, he says uh, that you've been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified is not a word we use unless you drink really bad coffee and you get sanctified early in the morning with your Sanka coffee, right? Do they even make Sanka anymore? Is that, am I, <laughs> I know some of you have it in your cabinets, but that doesn't mean they still make it, you know, right? Sanctified means to be set apart, to be declared, declared holy, and to be freed from sin. And how many of us feel freed from sin this morning? <laughs> but what he's saying is that's your reality that's your identity that you've been set apart you've been sanctified you've been freed from sin in fact you're a saint and to be a saint means that you're someone who's been sanctified and he says not only are you but every person in the church I want you to I want you to know that reality when you look around you look up and down your aisle take a minute do it you don't have to do it awkwardly like look look at the people around you right these are saints <laughs> they've been sanctified by God, and he says, I want, my hope is that you're, you're functioning in that reality. And, and fourth, he, he, he closes by saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father 
from the Lord Jesus Christ, that he offers them grace and peace. And he says, my hope is that you will be operating in God's rich overflow of grace and peace because grace and peace are things that we cannot produce of our own work, our own will, our own desire. You and I don't have the ability to produce that. And so the only way that's going to exist in our church and in our lives is if God blesses us with it, if he gives it to us, right? You can have an appearance of peace, but lasting peace only comes from the Holy Spirit. And so, so he says, hey, here's the hope. <laughs> if you think about that chart, here's my hope for you. Now, um, I could get away with this the first sermon because my kids weren't in here. Now they're in here, so now they're, now they're going to be in on something, right? But, um, you know, sometimes when I speak over them, when, the, when they're getting ready to get on the bus or when I pray with them at night, sometimes the things that I pray for them are things that I want to see in them, right? And so if I say, like, man, I pray that, that, that my kids would be leaders in the school, and that they wouldn't follow what the other kids do, but that they would, they would do what they know what's right and they would lead. Part of it's because I know that they do that and I, I want to encourage that. But part of it's saying like, hey, I know there's a temptation not to do that. <laughs> and so I'm going to speak this truth into your life. I'm going, to put that, I'm going to put that identity into your head because I want you to think about yourself way that, because that's how I view you and that's how God views you. And that's how I want you to view yourself. And so I think what Paul's doing here in this letter is he's starting off. You might, from the verses that I shared this morning, you're probably like, man... This is going to be an encouraging six months of, of study because this letter is so encouraging. He's saying so many good things. But, but really what he's doing is he's saying, hey, like I know there's some stuff you guys are struggling with, but let me begin by speaking truth over you. Let me begin by saying, hey, here's who you really, let me remind you, this is who you really are. This is who God made you to be. And so if we look at the specific things that he's saying to them, you can actually begin to get an indication of some of the things they might be struggling with. And so, so he talks about uh, his authoritative instruction, which leads us to believe that maybe they're questioning Paul's authority. Maybe they're questioning whether he has the right to come and speak to them and whether they need to obey the things that he's saying versus things that other people are saying. Maybe there's some different voices that are coming in and speaking, and maybe they're questioning whether, whether his word is authoritative. And maybe you're dealing with that in your own life where you're looking at the Bible and you're saying, like, hey, this is, it's an interesting book. It's hung around a long time. It's been on the bestsellers list, you know. It was written like 2,000 years ago, so it needs some updates maybe, uh, you know. That, that might be what you're thinking. Maybe you haven't landed on the place where you say, like, no, this is, man, this is it. I bend my life around this. I don't bend this around my life. I don't, I don't cut and paste this to fit with me. I, I actually use this to tell me where I need to go. So maybe you're experiencing the same struggles they were related to authoritative instruction. You read it and you think maybe they're tempted to see the church in a lesser identity than that of the church of Jesus. Maybe they're starting to think that it's their church and they like to do things in a particular way and maybe they're, they're looking down on other people that maybe aren't a part of, of the unique body that they're in. And maybe we struggle to do that sometimes. That was a big part of why we wanted to go down in the city and start working in partnership with some other churches because we, we want to make sure that we're not thinking that, uh, uh, that we're the only church of Jesus in this community. I just met with a group of pastors a, a week ago for a, for a luncheon, and it's pastors all within about a five-mile radius of here. And uh, they love Jesus, and they're trying to serve him in their context, and they're trying to do what they, they can do. And, and the more that we work together, the better we're going to see the kingdom expand, the more that we're going to see God do here uh, in our area. So I would, man, God forbid that all the blessing would flow through Riverside, right? We want, we want every church in this community to be a vessel of, of the Holy Spirit's blessing into our community. That's how we, we see it grow in a powerful way. You might look at it and think that maybe they're, they're struggling with the equality of all believers. 
Because he reminds them, he says, hey, remember, you guys are all sanctified and you've all been made holy by Jesus and you, you're all viewed as saints, so don't start to think that maybe you're better than somebody else in the church. I mean, we would never do that here, right? But some people. <laughs> hey, whenever you get a bunch of people in a room, they always try and make hierarchy, right? They always try and elevate and, 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 and de-elevate. And, and, um, and, uh, and so we try and be very intentional of saying, hey, man, we're, we're all in this together. Uh, we're, we're, and God values each person in here immensely. There's no second-class citizens in the kingdom or in our church. And, and Paul's going to have to deal with this because the, the Corinthian church was struggling with that a little bit. Maybe they were struggling with sanctification. He says, you're sanctified. You've been made holy. You've been freed from sin. So you can think like, hey, maybe they're not living in that identity. And if you've read the book of 1 Corinthians before, if you know a little bit about what's coming, like, yeah, they were struggling. <laughs> there were some sin issues that they had to deal with. See, when Jesus comes and frees us, it's like he walks into the prison cell and he takes the chains off and he opens up the door. But sometimes, some of us choose to remain seated in the cell. He's freed us, but we, we have to choose to live in that of freedom. We have to choose to decide which identity we're going to live in. Are we going to live in the identity that Christ has given to us and blessed us with? And, or are we going to continue to live in the old identity that we had? And so even if you've been made free, sometimes you can forget it. It says elsewhere in, in, in uh, 2 Peter, it says that, uh, that sometimes it's like we, uh, we become like so nearsighted that we're blind, forgetting who we've been made in Christ. We, we get wrapped up in sin and we just forget the truth of who we really are. Last thing, you might think that they're lacking grace for one another. Maybe they're thinking selfishly. Maybe they lack peace and they're experiencing division. And what you'll see as we go through this letter is all those things were true of this church. And if we're honest, at some varying degrees and levels, all those things are true of this church, right? Like every church and every person has those kind of struggles. And so maybe there was something that we touched on here this morning, maybe that spoke to you. Maybe it's something where you're like, yeah, you know what, I, that struggles. Maybe it's something else. Maybe by the grace of God, your particular thing didn't get touched on this morning, right? Maybe I didn't speak about the thing that you're struggling with, but you know what it is because the Holy Spirit convicts us and leads us. And so, so what I want to do in this moment is just invite you to acknowledge the reality. Your hope is to be up here. This is who God made you to be. This is who he wants you to be. But maybe your reality is down here. And instead of denying it, I want to give you a couple minutes just to admit that to God. A few moments of prayer to just kind of acknowledge it. If your reality is lower than where you want to be, just acknowledge it. Confess it. <laughs> Ask him and then say, God, I know I'm here, but I know you want me up here, and I know I can't work my way up here, so I need you to do what I can't do, and I believe you can do it, and I'm trusting in you to do it. And so with, uh, with, just in silence right now, I just want to offer you a chance to bow your head, close your eyes, and just spend a few moments with God talking about your reality and his hope and his ability to bring those together.
Amen. Amen. Man, anybody? You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> I know for me, I did that in the first service. What I just prayed about now was something totally different that God brought to my heart. And, um, man, that might have felt long. That was probably less than 60 seconds. Are you, are you taking that much time at each day, at least, right? <laughs> just to just make sure you and God are on the same page. Man, I hope that, that he spoke to some of you this morning about some things. And, um, and, and I want to encourage you that if you, if you put it in his hands, it's the best place for it. Sometimes we try and hide sin from God, like, oh, man, he doesn't need to know about this, right? He knows. Who are we kidding, right? <laughs> he knows. Like, be honest. Just lay it out before him, but don't, don't revel in it. Don't own it as your identity. Oh, God, you know I'm stubborn. You made me that way. It's just who I am, right? Like, you don't have to be. He can redeem that. Sorry, stubborn people. I didn't mean to pick on you particularly. So that's the hope. We talked a little bit about some of the reality that, that we know is coming, but let me talk to you a little bit about the reality of their context and background because there's a second tool that I want to talk to you about, which is this, that, that all truth lands, right? Uh, Paul Miller says in his book, uh, Love Me Life, he says, he says, love lands. Love is not this sort of distant kind of up here concept. Love always takes root in specific places, in scenarios, and in people, um, in each of us in our lives the truth that God is speaking is going to come home in very specific and tangible ways. And you're going to have decisions this week that you're going to make to say, hey, I'm going to start living more in line with what God is showing me, or I'm going to keep doing my own thing. And so the people of Corinth had that. They, 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 sometimes we read about the Bible and we think we're, uh, we're leading, reading like the Lord of the Rings where it's these made-up lands and people and things, and, it's, uh, and nothing wrong with Lord of the Rings, right? Like, but... These are real people. This was a real city. This is, they had real stuff that they were dealing with, and they weren't these super uh, two-dimensional characters that went from being totally bad to totally good. They struggled through it. And so let me, let me tell you a little bit about their reality they were living in. Corinth was a city that was situated, it, it was just set up for success. It was on this little four-mile-wide strip of land that was between these two major bodies of water, and so it was basically a crossroads. Like everything kind of had to go through there. Uh, and for ships, instead of going down around this dangerous um, cape and going up around, the easier thing to do would be to come into port, unload all the cargo, have it transferred, transferred these four miles over, put it on a different boat, and then take it to the next place. Or if it was a small enough boat, they would actually put it on rollers and they would drag it across the four-mile strip of land. And so, um, so if you can imagine, these sailors come into port, and either they're going to continue on with the cargo, they're going to do something else, and they get a couple days of shore leave. And how many of you guys have ever been down to Disney World and you read on, uh, like, the Pirates of the Caribbean? Anybody ever been on that ride? <laughs> right? Like, that's what I picture Corinth being like, basically, right? Like, it's, a, it's a, some, some wild and unruly sailors that are running around. They got some money in their pocket. They got shore leave, and they want to see how much trouble they can get into for the few days that they're in town. On top of that, so just, it, it was a place of pursuing uh, debauchery, like every kind of sin that you can imagine to get into. Um, it was also a place of great prosperity. Um, so all the same things that in our culture tempt us, because what do we worship, right? We, we worship a gratification of the flesh, and we worship success, and those things were the same things that were tempting these people. On top of that, uh, Corinth was a city that was part of the, uh, some, some of the Greek cities that were resisting the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire decided to make an example of them. So 150 years before Jesus was born, uh, the Roman Empire came in and just wiped it out. They just cleaned house, and it just sat there for 100 years, 
And then about 50 years before Jesus was born, uh, they came in and they made it a Roman, uh, a Roman colony, which would mean they would send retired generals and officers from the Roman Empire. They would go there. They would be given land. They would have their retirement money that they were living on, and they made it a little mini-Rome in the midst of the Roman Empire. And so now, uh, and, and now when Paul's coming in, it's less than 100 years after that. So we're looking at a city that is basically brand new. It doesn't have all those traditions and all those things. And so people are very open to whatever, right? It's like a wide open society. There's no, like, we've always done it that way because they haven't always done it that way, that, that they, they could do whatever. It's kind of like we like to go visit uh, Charlotte. I have two sisters that live in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you go to that city, it looks like the whole thing was built 20 years ago, right? Everything in there is brand new. And, and it's kind of, uh, and young people are drawn to that because they're, they don't have to work through all the red tape of tradition and all these things. And so you can see why Corinth was such a powerful center where people wanted to be. There was appeal, like whatever you wanted, you could find it there. So that was the background into which the gospel was coming. Now, you might look at it and say, like, man, how on earth could a church start there? <laughs> in the midst of all that, like, wouldn't the people be too distracted? Wouldn't there be too many other things that they'd want to do? But, but here's the reality that Paul found when he got there. And it's the same thing we see here, that, man, when you try and pursue, there's an emptiness that we each have, right? And you try and pursue it through gratifying the flesh, and you try and pursue it through success, and you try and pursue it through building an identity and a reputation for yourself, and some people were very satisfied in that, but some people, they do it and they just realize, man, I thought this would feel better. Is this all there is? And so what we have in the city, it's a city full of younger brothers, like from the prodigal son story, where they're saying, like, man, you know what? I did all that stuff, and it didn't fill me up. There's got to be something more. There's got to be something more. And suddenly this guy, Paul, comes walking into the city, and he says, hey, can I tell you about Jesus? Are you looking for identity? Are you looking for hope? Are you looking for purpose? Are you looking for meaning? Because he is the answer for all of that. And people began to respond in one of the, the most uh, depraved sin cities of their day. People began to hear about Jesus and respond in powerful ways and come together and to be with him. I want, to, I want to show you a quick picture of, of what you might think, like, wow, I'd love to know how that all unfolded. Well, by God's grace, he gave us a picture of it in Acts chapter 18. It actually records what happened when, when Paul showed up in Corinth and, and how the ministry unfolded. Here's what it says. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. Uh, when he found a, a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded that all the Jews had to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and he worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Now when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments, and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles." And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named uh, Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. you got to love that, right? <laughs> Paul gets kicked out of the synagogue and goes to the guy who lives right next door, and he's like, hey, can we meet here? And they're like, yeah, <laughs> right? So I don't know if Paul was vindictive or that was just God's uh, direction, right? But it was awesome, right? Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together 
uh, with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Paul's like, this city? <laughs> this, this city full of like sin and broken religion? Like, God's like, yes, I have many in this city, right? And he stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the, the, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal and saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But, but since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. He drove them from the tribunal. They all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Now, that's a church planning story right there, right? <laughs> like, I mean, that's, pretty, that's pretty incredible. And there's a couple things that I want you to see here, and we don't have time to unpack it all. I preached a sermon on this a while back in our study in the book of Acts, right? But one thing I always see, God can work all things together for his good doesn't mean that he causes everything. It doesn't mean that every bad thing is God pointing his finger and pushing it down on you. But God can redeem things that were meant for good and went meant for evil. He can redeem all of them for good. And so when Priscilla and Aquila were kicked out of Rome, they were probably like, God, why, how could you do this to us? This is our livelihood. This is our home. This is where we're, we're doing our ministry. And they went to Corinth. But when they got there and they met Paul, then they said, oh, now I see what you're doing, God. Maybe you're in that spot in your life right now. Maybe you've got something going on. It doesn't make sense. Your life got pushed sideways. Trust. Even if God didn't cause it, God can redeem it for his good. And there's things that he can work out in it. And man, I, I just know, you know, I look at that and I don't always get every answer. You don't always know why. I had a squirrel build a uh, nest and it's in my engine. I'm still praying like, God, why would you allow a squirrel to do that and eat through my electrical cords and like, you know, I'm still figuring that one out, right? But, but then there's other times where things happen and you're like, man, I shouldn't have been there at that moment and I shouldn't have been, I should have been somewhere else, but God put me there and then I see why he did it. And if he did it once, <laughs> he's probably doing it every time. We just don't always have the knowledge to see what it is. But look at it from that perspective, right? So God can do that. Look at Sosthenes. It's, it's an unusual enough name that you remember, you should have heard that somewhere before. Paul lists him as the co-author of 1 Corinthians. He says, this is Paul writing to you along with Sosthenes. So it's, it's reasonable to assume that um, the first uh, ruler of the synagogue got converted, and then they brought another guy in, and then he got converted. So God kept like, converting people out uh, of opposition to him into faith with him. So God can do amazing things. He can, he has, and he will, right? We also see that in the midst of all this successful ministry that Paul was struggling. And how do we know that? Because God had to appear to him in a vision. He said, hey, don't be afraid. Why would he come and say, don't be afraid? Because he was afraid, right? He said, don't be silent. Why would he say that? Because Paul was tempted to be silent. You might be in the middle of it and you say, man, like, I must be far from God because I'm afraid right now. I know, I feel like I should be doing this, but I'm just not doing it, right? Like, that doesn't mean you're a failure. It doesn't mean you've missed out. You just need to come and hear his voice saying, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be silent. I've got people that you know nothing about. 
He did the same thing to Elijah. Elijah came and said, man, I'm the only one. He was down on the bottom of that. His reality was down here, right? He said, I'm the only one who loves you, God. And God says, I have people you don't know anything about. God has people here in Horsham, and he's just waiting to use us to connect with them and reveal to them who he is so that he can use them for his glory. You've got to believe that in in your community, because I know this isn't just a Horsham church, right? We're, We're from all around. This is how God builds his church. We see that also that he, he stayed for 18 months. So this wasn't like a, hey, believe in Jesus, peace out kind of thing, right? This was discipleship. He said, hey, come, come to Jesus. And then they came and they come and say, hey, well, now what do I do about this? Well, man, like, let's look at God's word. Let's figure out how do we do this? And he walked with them for 18 months, showing them how to walk with Jesus. And guess what? When he left, they still didn't get it right, because that's why he's writing this letter to them, because after he left, things went off the rails a little bit, and he had to continue pouring in. And if, and if you've done any discipleship, you know that that's how it works. It's messy. It's not linear. It doesn't go in a straight line, right? It'll be going great, and then things will fall apart, and you pick it back up, and you keep going. But, but take comfort. That's how it works. And God doesn't want us to lose heart. He never gives up on us. And so he doesn't want us to give up on each other. And so Paul stays there for 18 months and he does this. Man, Corinth was a, was a sin-soaked city. It was violent. It was wild. And it was the exact place where the gospel could grow and flourish. And if it can do it there, it can do it here. So we need to pray for God to, to, to treat our city, our nation, like Corinth, right? <laughs> to come into the midst of a broken mess and redeem it. To come in the midst of our brokenness and redeem it. And to believe that he can do it. Man, I, I, I love you guys. I'm excited to, to walk through this journey with you. I think God is just going to do some awesome stuff in our church through this series. I think he's going to do some heart surgery. I think he's going to expose some idols. But I also think he's going to give us like a template on how to walk forward. He's going to teach us. He's going to show us how to get closer to him. And so I invite you to come along on this journey. Uh, there's invites on your, on your seat or nearby. Man, take two of those and just keep it with you this weekend and, and pray and see if God doesn't show you somebody to invite to come along with you and see what he does. Man, would you join me in prayer?